0: I think every reader knows who Matt Haig is. The Midnight Library is a huge hit. Matt, thank you so much for joining us on Poured Over, the Barnes & Noble podcast. We're so delighted to see you. The Comfort Book is a little different from The Midnight Library. It arrives in the US
1: on July 6th. Yeah, no, it definitely does. It it arrives everywhere, actually. It's the first time in my career where I've got one publication date, UK, US, all over. So would you set up The Comfort Book for listeners? Well, I wrote it last year to comfort myself primarily, because I was, like many people in the early half of 2020, I was quite stressed out. I was quite frazzled. I have had issues with anxiety and depression since my 20s. I'm now 45 years old, so had a long time. I was in a little anxiety patch, not severely ill or anything, but I was definitely feeling it. And I had just finished writing The Midnight Library, and I'm not very good after I've just sent off a book, because you have this energy to finish a book and you keep going and keep going. And then it's like stepping off a roundabout that's been spinning very, very fast. And unless you keep moving, you can sort of crash and sort of fall over. So I I wanted to write something, but I wanted to write something that felt quite different. I didn't want to write a story at that point in in the sense of really structuring a story. Um. so I thought, right, I'm just going to have fun. What's the book I want to write most in the world right now? And it was just a load of things that either calm me down, things I've learned, quotes I've taken inspiration from from other people, life stories I've taken inspiration from. And yeah, it was just basically me writing a very easy reading, quite easy writing, to be honest, look at comfort as a theme. And because it felt certainly maybe what the world needs, but certainly what I needed last year was that. So I'm not writing it from a place of I've got all the answers, or mm-hmm. I can tell you exactly how to become. I'm sort of working it out for myself as we go. And I wanted to, to have the feel of a kind of meditation and the fact mm-hmm. that it's little aphorisms, quite short chapters, lots of white space around it, and you sort of float through the book. And you can pick it up at any point. You could start reading it at page 72. It has actually got a structure. It's got it's in different parts. The parts make sense to me, though maybe not initially to every reader but initially it was going to be themed around the four elements so it was going to be Mm -hmm. fire earth air water and although i got rid of those titles for the parts it's kind Mm -hmm. of a lot of sort of fire imagery and water imagery in different parts of the book so mm-hmm. there's a lot of talk about flow and where that comes from and a lot of fun and yeah I had great fun and um, it was a good excuse as well to fill it with all kinds of quotes from like ancient Greek philosophy to James Baldwin to Maya Angelou you know everything basically everything I wanted to put down on page and sort of research was in there but it's a very very short book and yeah it has form but it also feels kind of formless as well but hopefully in a calming relaxing way.
0: It was fun, though, to see Richard Feynman, the physicist, and Marcus Aurelius, Joy Harjo, Leonard Cohen. We don't often see that combination. And again, Baldwin is there and Angelou is there. And you, at one point, talk about 10 books that helped your mind. Can we talk about that list for a second? Because it's really fun and eclectic.
1: I always put at number one, Letters to a Young Poet, which is Mm -hmm. written by Raina Maria Rilke at the start of the last century, which was literally this older poet writing to this younger poet who'd written to him. And it's letters about poetry, yes, but also Mm -hmm. life, mental health, although it wasn't framed in those terms, sexuality, all kinds of things come up within that and it's just full of life advice and from a hard place but yes all kinds of books so you've got Winnie the Pooh I find A.A. Milne uh, a particularly interesting and comforting writer because obviously he's, he's known for these very sweet and sentimental tales but actually behind them you know be, as as a recent movie showed you know it was his experience of World War One and shell shock and he had basically PTSD and mm-hmm. Winnie the Pooh and writing these stories was part of his recovery and mm-hmm. I think you can feel a lot of that in those books. I always waffle on about uh, Winnie the Pooh because I'm determined for everyone to realize they're actually self-help books and they're kind of mental health books because each character in Winnie the Pooh mm-hmm. represents a different condition I think Eeyore who's depressed, got Piglet who's anxiety. I never know about Owl. I'm still... Mm-hmm. I'm still working on Al. And you've got Tigger, who's sort of just hyperactivity and very manic. And you've got Pooh himself, who's sort of confused but hopeful and trying to sort of work out everything. And then you've got Christopher Robin, who's arguably hallucinating at all. So it's kind of a mental health book and there's a lot of comfort in (laughs) that. that's my Winnie the Pooh take what else have we got in there lots of poetry I love Emily mm-hmm. Dickinson I mean obviously Emily Dickinson is totally a household name in America but less so in England she's increasingly a bit more known I like to think I played a little my own little part in that I try and mention them mm-hmm. wherever I can what else Thoreau meditations of uh, Marcus Aurelius Stoicfully. Mm-hmm. I, I was getting last year in particularly very into Eastern religions, not from the religious perspective, but from the philosophy of Buddhism and Taoism. And like, you've
0: mentioned in earlier interviews that you feel like books can save people and books have certainly saved you. I mean, you've talked about reading, rereading Graham Greene, The Power and the Glory, and also the effect that Jean Rees' Wide Sargasso Sea has had on you as well. So it seems to me that you write these really beautiful, accessible books where you're talking about lots of fun lovely moments that we can all relate to but you're also sliding in lots of big ideas about difficult things and some of which are conditions like depression and anxiety some are bigger ideas about quality of life and how to live your life
1: yes i mean i'm really interested in philosophy i never studied philosophy in any academic way but I find there's a lot of help and nourishment in philosophy. And I think most people are actually probably more philosophical than me necessarily realise because we see it as very abstract and very difficult and obtuse. And so what I try and do in both fiction and non-fiction is, yes, to try and entertain people, but also to give them a little something to chew on or to think about. But to do it in a very simple and hopefully comforting An accessible way. I can in particular remember what it was like in my 20s when I was uh, going through panic disorder and depression and how hard it was actually to read. And it's a scary Mm -hmm. thing to actually find it difficult. Mm -hmm. And already, you know, by the start of this millennium, there were a lot of great books about depression. There were things like The Noonday Demon. But at that point of being ill yourself sometimes you just don't have the stamina or Mm -hmm. the energy or the incentive to go through a 500 page tome packed full of brilliant but dense prose and so what I try and do is actually communicate to a reader who is like myself at that age my test is would I have been able to access this at the point I found it hardest to Mm -hmm. access it and so I feel like a lot of writers, especially, dare I say, a lot of British writers, often look down on accessibility. Mm-hmm. In you know, mm-hmm. it's almost like because we have an education system which says use the more obscure word, you know, always wear your intelligence on the sleeve, it becomes people a little bit subconsciously suspicious of an accessible. Book or an accessible style of writing and I think well that was a little bit too easier and, and I, I try and go the other way and actually try yes not to compromise actually to still talk about what mm-hmm. you're trying to find the simplest way to say that thing that's why I love short sentences short chapters little paragraphs floating in space I've always loved that that type of book and any book snobbery that is out there is bound to leap on things like the comfort book and say, oh, what is this? You know, is this just, I don't know. Do you know what a tea towel is? I've had, and it's normally men who say this, so it's quite interesting, but I've had, you know, people say, oh, it's tea towel wisdom, or it's Mm -hmm. like it belongs on a tea towel, or it belongs on a fridge magnet. And it's like, A, don't be snobby, but also B, what have you got a problem with kitchens for? Why are all your insults Mm -hmm. related to um, fridge magnets and stuff? So I actually, I don't mind that stuff. I, I like it when people react in in different ways, because I'm very clear with what I'm doing. And I know it's definitely not for everybody. And it's not trying to be, you know, too clever or anything. But I just want to sort of like communicate and access ideas for myself, first and foremost, and I hope it relates to other people too.
0: Well, one of the things you talk about though in the comfort book, and and I've seen this sort of throughout your work, language is a way back to life. That for you, I mean, that was something that got you through yes. in reasons to stay alive. That was the situation, obviously, in Midnight Library and Nora, where language was the thing that brought her back. I'm still having a moment where she has she zooms into her body where she's been an Olympic swimmer and she has to give a speech and goes com- just completely off off script. Yeah. And everyone is just kind of like, what do we yeah. do with this? What did she do? Language matters language is a symbol of our evolution it's our ability to change and it freaks a lot of people out because change is hard
1: yeah when you think about therapy what is therapy therapy ultimately whatever kind of therapy it is, short of maybe like exposure therapy but like therapy whether it's written or spoken is made of words you know Mm -hmm. therapy is about language itself and although i'd never sort of dare say i'm writing therapy i do think the comfort of sharing something in language is a real real therapeutic thing i can remember when i could almost not speak i had depression at, to such an extent you know sometimes literally physically couldn't speak my tongue mm-hmm. felt heavy. it was a very very low point and i was very lucky because i had a very supportive partner and she she said just write what you're feeling
0: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm
1: little bits and pieces. And what I wrote was, it wasn't very good. It was probably very difficult to read because it was very dark stuff about my head being on fire or whatever. But I was just writing down what I was feeling. And I realized, as you're writing down what you're feeling, it's suddenly, it, it, it's not a magic wand by any stretch, but it, it takes something that's very internal mm-hmm. and makes it external. And as soon as you've done that, it's like it's entering the world of humanity again. Because when... When you're certainly suffering through something like a mental health condition, when it's at an intense point, you start to feel like you're an alien. You start to feel like you're not really relating to the normal world in any sense. And language is a way back for that. And it's a way to actually see and recognize what's there i think it's a way of seeing really it's a way of understanding things a bit better and then being able to sort of face what you're dealing with i mean i was the sort of typical young man who didn't identify a problem until it was too late and i had a sort of full-blown breakdown and i think language and writing it down is, is the opposite of that it's a way to prevent that it's it's a way to sort of be open and share it and not put any uh, psychological blocks in place, if that makes sense.
0: It does. And you also make a couple of really important points about hope not being the same thing as happiness. And I think people do confuse that, that somehow we're supposed to always be happy. And I I don't think that's the human condition.
1: Yeah, I think in the book, I make the point that, you know, Somewhere Over the Rainbow was was, sort of seen as the most hopeful song of all time. And that was written on the eve of World War II and Wizard of Oz came out in 1939, just as Europe was going to war and one of the darkest chapters in human history. And it's often in those dark times that we have the most hope because yeah, as as you say, yeah, hope is not happiness. Uh, What hope is the belief in the possibility of change and within that belief, the belief that that change could be a positive change. And that was something that I really struggled with when I was ill because obviously depression is kind of the opposite of that it comes in with this false negative certainty that nothing is worth hoping for because there will be no better outcome and you can stay locked in that mindset for a little while and so I, I'm i a great believer actually that optimism and hope is as authentic as the opposite and it's, it's it's definitely more useful than the opposite and it's as more, more authentic because when i was hopeless i was i was convinced at one point this is going to sound a bit bleak but i was convinced at one point i wouldn't make it to the age of 25 and now i'm at the age of 45 and so pessimism and depression lie just as often if not more often than hope so hope is hope is useful and hope is something you actually can cultivate through recovery through having gone through the hard times mm-hmm. and all you need um, to have hope really is a faith in the uncertain nature of things and what I try and um, hammer home in the comfort book is about how life is full of change and full of uncertainty because what was dangerous and nearly life-threatening for me was at the point where I didn't believe in change and I thought mm-hmm. I would be stuck within the same mind, the same experiences and the same feelings forever. And a big shift in my thinking uh, and one of the reasons why I use and maybe even overuse weather metaphors all the time about storm and dark skies and rains and hurricanes is because however bad a storm is, you always know that you're separate to the storm, you're experiencing the storm. And that's not to lessen the danger of the storm, but it's to to separate you from it. When I first became ill, there was no separation between my mind storm and myself. I thought I was this forever. I was depression forever. Not only depression, but this level of depression for all time, and there'd be no fluctuation. Now, of course, obviously, people have chronic Health conditions. And I'm someone who'll also be prone and have to look after my mental health forever. But within that, there's all kinds of fluctuation and there's all kinds of change. And there's all, you know, I have genuinely known more moments of happiness in my life, this side of depression, than I ever did before it. That's not despite having had depression. That's because of having had depression and being having a new perspective through recovery about gratitude and being more in tune with the sort of neutral nature of life and not needing to always escape myself or drink too much or whatever.
0: fear of change and a desire to control your surroundings completely tend to go hand in hand and they tend not to work well. One of the other things you talk about is the fact that loneliness added on to all of this makes things worse. But that the cure, and I'm going to quote you for a second, the cure for loneliness isn't more people, the cure for loneliness is understanding who we are. I'm using that also to set up the conversation I want to have with you about social media and how that impacts not only our mental health, but our connection to the world and other readers and other people. Um, I'm completely fascinated by social media and people's behavior there. You um, recently deleted a lot of tweets, which I really do want to talk to you about because you've been on Twitter for 11 years.
1: Over 11 years, you evolve, you change. I know. I discovered, well, my wife discovered this app where you can sort of like put in a date, like from January 2010 to December 2019, and you can just press delete on all of it. And it wasn't because I, well, I don't think I've written anything scandalous or anything, but it was more a fact that you just, you know, in most of life, you're having conversations and those words evaporate the moment you've spoken to them and they work mm-hmm. for, for that present moment. But almost Everything about me has changed since I first opened a Twitter account. My attitude to mental health, the way I talk about mental health, has Mm -hmm. massively changed. Politics have probably changed a little bit. Uh, My understanding of all kinds of social issues have changed. And I I, I worry with social media that it kind of fixes us in place, you know, because we're Mm -hmm. leaving a permanent footprint. And we obviously follow people who have similar opinions to ourselves. But the risk then is that we just become we become little statues of ourselves fixed forever to have the same viewpoint and I'm you know I want to I want to feel even at 45 that I've still got that childlike thing of growing and of learning new things and being open to new things and yes obviously there are some fundamental truths and there's some fundamental principles of ethics and all of that but I feel the danger is when you think right I know what my values are 100% and there's no shifting them and this is right and this is wrong. And mm-hmm. you, know, you need, and this is what why books are so great as well, isn't it? Because they keep the door to our mind slightly ajar permanently to mm-hmm. new experiences and new ideas. And I think that's more important than ever now in our society when it becomes so polarized and you know there's more ever it seems like ever more reasons to sort of lose faith in humanity is to sort of keep that openness to hope and to keep that openness to a newer version of ourself always in the future and there's some science behind that as well because mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I don't really like scientific words but one I do like is neuroplasticity which means mm-hmm. your you know your brain is Changing. It's used a lot in, for instance, Alzheimer's research where they look at ways where you can change the structure of the brain. But even without trying, neuroplasticity is happening to our brains all the time. It happens with every book we meet. It's Mm -hmm. happening to us in this conversation. It's happening in every experience we have. Our brain is literally changing structure. So in what in one sort of real sense, we are actually changing who we are through Mm -hmm. the experiences we have. And this is a slight side point, but I can remember the hardest question I was ever asked at an event. And it was for a book I wrote, my kind of memoir, Reasons to Stay Alive, about my sort of suicidal experience mm-hmm. and recovery. And that question was, in many ways, you were privileged and lucky because you had support, you had a support network, you know, you had a safety net, you had parents you could live with, you had a partner. This just the main point. You had a partner who was there by your side through that experience. And there's no arguing with that. You know, I I was, I did have that privilege. I did have that support network. I, you know, I didn't have to go out to work because I had people who'd look after me. So, and then his question was, what would you say to the person who had nobody. How can that person stay alive for other people if they literally feel like they have no one and they're totally alone and they're totally on their own? What would you say to that person? And I didn't, I I just fumbled an answer at the time, but I've continually thought about it. And I think (laughs) the answer is not dissimilar to my own answer in the sense that you stay alive for other versions of yourself. You stay alive for the possibility of what you will become. In a sense, we're, we're all a thousand people, we're all a thousand different people at different points in our life. You know, we're not our five-year-old selves. We're not our 15-year-old selves. We're not our 25. You know, it changes continually. And that change, it might slow down a little bit in adulthood, but it keeps on going. It keeps on going. We continually change. So we stay alive for other people, but those other people are us. It's just ourselves. We're other versions of us in the future. So I think that's what it is. And that's what hope is for me. It's that belief that we will live to see another reality, a better reality. Yes, life's never gonna be free from suffering, life's never gonna be free from the hard stuff, but within that, there's gonna be such moments of hope and wonder and magic that we can't see within that present.
0: I mean, I am having a conversation about feelings with a Brit. I don't
1: know what it is. (laughs) I had a Californian uncle. I was a ra- raised on American TV and books. I don't know.
0: Well, there you go, because I thought you folks were not supposed to have feelings. Certainly not show them, but I, and I say this as someone who grew up in New England and I can guarantee
1: you we yes. were not supposed to have feelings either. I was that person. I was that person. Mm-hmm. And I think mm-hmm. that's one of the reasons why I, I had to sort of exercise that person, that stiff upper lip, who was very suspicious about anything. Oh, someone's doing yoga for mental health. or I just embraced it all. I, I say somewhere that cynicism is a luxury you don't have when your head's on fire. You can be cynical about all kinds of things when you're relatively well, but when you're actually needing help, you need to be as wide open as you can to where that um, help can come from.
0: One of the things you riff on in the new book too is the importance of weird thinking. And since I'm a bookseller and we're kind of have weird thinking cornered. I just wanted to talk to you about it for a minute and see where you were going with this importance of weird thinking because it's it's a fun chat.
1: Yeah, well, I feel like we talk about conforming to society, but there's another kind of conforming where we conform, you know, to ourselves and we think, oh no, we're this type of person. You'll think you have a position on something. And then there'll be a just little thought saying, actually, yeah, but what about the other side? And what about this? And obviously you can't do it on everything. You know, you can't do it mm-hmm. on climate change or racism, there's very clear-cut things that are true and not true, but about a lot of things. It could be as simple as your attitude to food or your attitude to the kind of books you think you like, Mm -hmm, or mm -hmm. all these things. I don't like it when someone says, what type of books do you like? Because as soon as you say the type of books you like, it becomes this thing where you think, I I like that type of book, I like that genre of book, and that becomes limiting because... Mm it feels like oh I'm not a science fiction person or I'm not and I like I like looking at those parts which I think I'm not like for instance I grew up convinced I didn't like science convinced I wasn't a science person because Mm -hmm. my, my science teachers weren't particularly great at school and I really thought it was almost like West Side Story but instead of Jets versus Sharks I thought you were either an arts person or you were a sort of math science person that's a ridiculous divide because i i think like and i did really badly by the way in all my science exams and it was the thing that stopped me getting into good universities and good a level you know, I, I was just bad at science and then as a as a grown-up person i i read stuff about well for instance uh what inspired the midnight library and i had an idea 10 years ago for parallel writing about parallel lives because i was reading the science of parallel lives and, and stuff mm-hmm. and i've had my best ideas from reading books I never thought I would read right I didn't think I was a science person so I feel like good things happen when we listen to those quieter voices inside ourselves which are a little bit different Mm -hmm. to the ones we've conditioned ourselves to have at the forefront and you shouldn't always listen to those voices but sometimes it's good to pay attention to those different or unusual parts of ourselves.
0: I promised a store manager, Cheyenne Spink at the b in Ashburn, Virginia, who is a huge fan. I promised her I would ask a couple of questions, but she has two. So I'm going to ask the Midnight Library question first, and then I'm going to ask the other one, which is adorable. If you were in your own Midnight Library, what's the first regret you'd want to retract so you could see what your life would be without it?
1: Well, I suppose it's not totally dissimilar to Nora's, although Nora can play the piano. It sounds quite a, a, a trivial one, but for me, I often wonder... At the age of 14 or maybe 13, I gave up piano. And because, I don't know, self-conscious teenage boy and the type of school I was at, I didn't think it was a cool thing to be going to Mrs. Peter's on a Friday evening to have my piano lessons. And so I gave it up and I said, Mom, I don't want to do piano anymore. And I I was actually quite good at piano. And okay. I I sometimes wonder, oh, if I'd have kept music in my life, if I'd have kept on You know, I don't think I'd have been out in John, but if I'd have kept going, you know, where would I have, how would I have explored myself without having to always write words if I could actually write music as well? So I I sometimes think I could, so I suppose I'd be undoing, giving up piano and sticking Mm -hmm. with it. I did actually last year, I was one of those annoying people who was trying to learn a new skill in lockdown and during the pandemic. But because my children, Lucas and Pearl, they have an electric piano and there's an app I think it's called Simply Piano or something. And it's it's really good and really addictive to, to learn to play the piano. And and so I was sort of relearning with them. But there's nothing more humiliating than trying to learn a skill with an 11 and a 12-year-old where their brains are so absorbent. So they'll be flying. You know, they're, they're, they're off doing their sort of sonatas and their Beethoven and Brahms. And you're sort of still there with your two fingers going up the C scale. There you go. That was what I was doing. And I yeah. mentioned in the book, then I mentioned um, Joy Harjo, who, and as well as her, you know, she she plays music and she learned the saxophone in her 40s to a, a professional proper level. And, you know, so yeah, there's always hope. There's always hope. And neuroplasticity again, isn't it? We can change ourselves and become musical beings.
0: I saw Leonard Cohen play one of his last shows. And I have to tell you, if I can bounce up and down on my knees on stage like that in my 80s, I don't need the stage part. I just, watching him
1: move was extraordinary. Wow, amazing. He start. he was a like quite late starter. Uh-huh. He was like, uh-huh. third, just at the start of his career.
0: Cheyenne's other question. Okay, If you could have any superpower, what would it be?
1: <laughs> um, Time travel's always good, isn't it? If that counts. Yeah. That counts as a superpower. I'd like to, yeah, I wouldn't want to sort of... I'd always like a sort of get-out button. I'd like to sort of go and be able to quickly get myself out of situation. But yeah, I'd like to go back to ancient Greece or something. It always sounds creepy, doesn't it, to say invisibility. But I think invisibility would have its uh, would have its advantages. I, yeah, I've been many times in my life, normally standing in a book industry party in London or something, where I would have mm-hmm. liked the feel of invisibility. <laughs> Just... Listen in to conversations without actually having to contribute. Um, yes, as someone who had social anxiety. So a cross between invisibility and time travel. So it's probably not going to make the sort of Marvel canon of superheroes, but there you go. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> What's next for you as a writer?
1: Different, I think. I, want, I get bored very easily. Mm-hmm. So I've just finished writing a children's book and... <laughs> I've also, there's a a film adaptation of one of my children's books coming out. Well, it's coming out of cinemas in the UK, but it's going to be on Netflix in America this Christmas. Um, So that's coming in December, A Boy Called Christmas. And I really do, I mean, there's definitely another children's book. I love writing children's books, And I don't mean this in any condescending way at all. I genuinely think children are better readers than adults in lots of ways. Okay, their vocabulary might not be always as wide as ours Mm -hmm. but their imagination is so wide open
0: Mm -hmm. like
1: you can bring on the unicorns and the trolls and they won't question it they're not necessarily believing in unicorns and trolls it's just they're willing to go with the dream of the imagination more so it's so fun to write for children and so I definitely want to write more children's books and I will obviously be writing another um, novel for grown-up people as well Uh, Americans might not know this because it's really with the Midnight Library that I've found a sort of wider readership in America. But Midnight Library was my twenty-first book, so which makes me feel really old. But I, I've written twenty-one mm-hmm. books, and yet I feel almost like I have second novel syndrome with the book to follow the Midnight Library. There's all this sort of expectation now, and you know people want sort of a version of that or something. So I've got to try and ignore all those voices and just um, write what I really want to write because that normally tends to be the only only way to do something because at least then at least if you write a book that you like if it doesn't set the world on fire and if it you know if no one reads it then at least you can say well I liked it and I'm Mm -hmm. proud of what I've done but because I think the moment you're trying just to please readers or you're just trying to do this do it this way it can um get you in a bit of a pickle and so I've got to sort of ignore all the outside voices from publishers and different things and just think right what do I want to write but I haven't got it yet I haven't got it yet but um I I'm assuming at some point I will have it it's not that I don't have ideas it's just I have no idea at the moment which one to write and mm-hmm. I've got out five open word documents which is not good because I keep hopping between so I've just got to get some clarity and a little bit of calm into my brain to think mm-hmm. about where.
0: Do you start with story or do you start with character when you start a new project?
1: Um, well, with the Midnight Library, for instance, I because it, it depends book to book, but with the Midnight mm-hmm. Library, I would say it really started with the concept. Um, not, mm-hmm. less, not necessarily the story, but the concept of the library in Parallel Lives. And interestingly, Nora, the central character, wasn't there until quite late in the day. I mean, the first draft of the Midnight Library, dare I say it, it had a male Mm -hmm. protagonist. And so I did the controversial decision of being a male writer, writing a female protagonist. Not for any other reason other than that, I could not see this male character. And I think the reason I couldn't see this male character was because I was essentially writing a version of myself. So it was, Mm -hmm. you know, my younger self going through... Um, depression and stuff like that and although you would assume it's possibly quite easy to write yourself sometimes it's actually difficult because it's like looking at your face too much in the mirror like you don't know what you look like anymore and often you need some kind of distance to see something so actually when I just made the sort of gender switch and when it became Nora, although obviously as a male writer, you have all kinds of issues and sensitivities and you can't just transfer the male character, um, maybe a female character because people have different expectations and she's got different lived experiences and all of that. But in a strange way, it gave me a green light where I could actually be in some ways more autobiographical because I had this shield and no one was going to think I was Nora because... I'm different age, different gender, different name, everything. So I could actually, in the early sections, when you're talking about mental health stuff, I put more of myself in that character for clearly not being that character, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm.
0: It absolutely makes sense. Flipping back to the new book for a second, the comfort book. What's the one thing you really want readers to feel? Is it literally you want them to be comforted by this book? Or is there something else going on? I mean, it's, there's
1: always yeah. something else going on with you. Yeah, well, I, I mean, one thing I had in mind when I was writing it, which sounds silly, but because as someone who over the last 10 years has spent too long on social media, I had in mind, I wanted this book to be like the antidote to Twitter. Like it was just like the opposite, give someone the opposite, whatever Twitter does, whatever Twitter gives you, I wanted this mm-hmm. book to kind of give you the opposite. Um, hopefully, the one thing it has that Twitter has is it's a lot of short form And it keeps your attention. But beyond that, I wanted the feeling to be very different to you know that feeling you get on Twitter when your heart starts to race. And Mm -hmm. so I wanted the opposite feeling, where people felt felt like it is kind of like having a bath or a letting go or a meditation. Yet also reframing a few things. This isn't a book about denial. This isn't a book about ignoring the horrors of the world. This isn't a book about putting your head in the sand. This is a book about actually saying when you embrace life in its totality, you can often find a kind of comfort within that. I mean, I always have to be careful when I talk about this within the context of depression for obvious reasons. I'm not belittling any mental health experience. But in my own instance, even though depression was life-threatening and all of that, I can remember within that, there's always moments, there's always little moments or little things which were slightly less bad or something would flash or you'd notice something beautiful or like the sky would take on this extra power not despite being in depression but because of it because any moment of relief then took on a sudden power and so what i'm trying to do is is to actually speak to people who might not be having the best time in life but they can mm-hmm. actually find something within that present which they can hold on to which could somehow, Give them hope about a better future. So that's my idea of comfort. It's about change. It's about belief. Reframing uncertainty as a positive thing, and about um, about very unwestern thing of embracing sort of life in all its suffering and all its hopes and wonders altogether as a totality. And at any one moment, all those components are there. Their their quantities may shift around, but it's mm-hmm. all there. At once uh, in, in a bit in a bit of a way, going back to science, how you know in physics everything is kind of made of everything you know we've got mm-hmm. everything
0: right.
1: you know and the quantities change yep. um, but in our sort of physical makeup, you know we've got everything every component in the universe in some form is inside us. and I feel like that with emotion as well. and every uh, every you know at every funeral, at every wedding, there is within that every single emotion. Has ever been.
0: You have that great quote from Richard Feynman, the physicist, in here Everything is interaction.
1: Everything is interaction. He goes on to say, You can't say A is made of B or B is made of A because everything is made of it, you know, how it interacts with everything else in the universe. And I mean, he was talking in a very scientific way there, but I think that applies to life and to people and to us. And it's about seeing the connections in a world which sometimes feels increasingly atomized and disconnected. It is still about holding on to those connections. And commonalities and all. Who are you reading these days and recommending? Well, at the moment, I mean, I'm all well. When I, when people ask me for a book to recommend, mm-hmm. often it is quite American authors, you know, like Pema Chodron. Anne Lamotte is another writer I really love. You know, I'm not a particularly spiritual person, and both those writers have a spiritual dimension to their work. Mm-hmm. I find a lot of wisdom in their stuff and um so they're two writers i'm i read I'm, I'm reading something very sort of different at the moment literally right now i'm reading the 1812 version of the grim fairy tale <laughs> i don't know if you know but there were two versions there's the one i think which is more commonly found in barnes and noble and everywhere is the 1850s one which is a slightly slightly sanitized victorian mm-hmm. Feel the actual 1812 was when they went around Germany collecting these very raw tales from the people, and they're very dark. Very, they make Neil Gaiman look very light and fluffy because the, the tales themselves are quite, you know, they're not just the Disney versions you think right. of when you're thinking of, um, I don't know, Cinderella and Red Riding Hood and all, but they're really dark stories and very strange. So, I'm reading that at the moment, partly to get inspired because I'm trying to do something fantastical. What else? I've also, I read that uh, Jenny Lawson, you know, Jenny Lawson. Oh, yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. She's great. I've just read her book, Broken, which is really great, too. And I've got a very big TBR pile at the moment.
0: No, I thought the lockdown and pandemic was going to help us all get through our TBR lists, but that doesn't quite seem to be the case.
1: no. <laughs> It's not it's strange that, isn't it? Um I think, you know, I think in some ways though books have had quite a moment. I mean, obviously yes. this has been certainly in my country I've I've noticed I suppose it's partly because certain options haven't been there. So instead of going to the theater or a cinema, mm-hmm. people have turned to books and books are one of our oldest technologies, aren't they? And I I feel like in stressful times and in modern periods, we're, we're drawn either to the modern hellscape of Twitter, or we we retreat into the 5,000-year-old technology that is the books. And I do
0: love holding a book in my hand. I am absolutely that person. I mean, I'll read on anything. Whatever format I have, I'll read. And sometimes you do read electronically. For me, it's it's always about story and voice. And whether or not I'm being surprised or charmed, and and I do think we've lost a little bit of that with the social media landscape. That
1: serendipity, that's yeah. kind of like oh, I can yeah. be surprised. Algorithms, isn't it? If you bought by this, then you know it's like actually, I want to I want to buy something you don't think you don't think mm. I'd actually. You know, sometimes you need that. And this is what the great thing about. I mean, obviously, I'm going to. Um, big up bookstores in a Barnes & Noble podcast. But genuinely, this is what's great about bookstores, that randomness that you can, and libraries, I suppose, as well. You can just fall upon something. You can see something on a table that's next to the book you think you wanted and think, oh, actually, and you start to read that and and it gets you in. And yeah, when you're doing everything on the internet, you have less of that because the computer knows everything about you and it keeps saying, oh, you like that YouTube video, so you watch this YouTube video. And yeah, we do need more of that, you're right.
0: And that is one of the things you talk about in the book too, ignorance shrinks us. And I do feel like when we get into these little boxes, you know, we, or we retreat to our corners, let's call it, we retreat to our corners and, and we stop growing and we stop changing and we stop embracing the unknown or the unpredictable or what have you. And I kind of like that, but you know, I I like to be surprised. I I like to have things
1: change. Definitely, I love discovering a new recipe. That I haven't mm-hmm. had. it's so easy, isn't it, to get a pattern into eating the same thing on a Monday night, mm-hmm. and have the same pasta meals or whatever, and to just you know try out some I don't know Indonesian satire or something that you've never had before. You're like, wow, yeah, I can do this, and I can cook. Uh, right. Yeah, new experiences and yeah, books. Books are great, great for that. And also, books have been kind of like our vacation, haven't they? Because of not being able to literally travel as much, sure. often, um, books have been our Books have been our entry into other places and other universes,
0: and actually, books do give you both of the superpowers that you were talking about. Oh, you get yeah. to be invisible and eavesdrop, and you get to yeah. time travel. So you do have your superpowers.
1: Yeah, every every book is an act of time travel because you know mm-hmm. you're not reading it at the moment the writer wrote it, and yeah, the invisibility. Book. That's it really true. Is. Well, that, is per- that is perfectly rounded up.
0: Matt, thank you so much. Is there anything else you want to add before we end
1: this? I'll just end on a sort of soppy note of gratitude. Gratitude to you, obviously. Gratitude to Barnes & Noble, because, you know, it's been wonderful this year, especially as I've been I'm not been able to do an American book tour, which is what right. I would love to have done. But to sort of like see... Um, via that cursed thing we've been talking about, the internet, seeing all these wonderful things um, happening on Instagram or Bookstagram, as they call it, and um, seeing all these American readers embrace the book, that's been so great and so lovely to see. You know, I've done, like, um, tours and stuff in America with my books before. I can remember one tour where I did an event. I can't remember where it was, either Denver or or somewhere. And anyway, there's one person, one reader... (laughs) At that event and it turns out at the end she'd only been at the event because she was she had arthritis and she was resting her <laughs> legs so I just, it just happened to be a chair she wasn't there for me <laughs> but because she was sitting in that chair I had to do the whole hour so now I feel I'm not I'm not saying I'm going to be doing my stadium tour of America anytime soon but now I feel there would be readers if I went to America so I'm very grateful that I have some American readers now and um, I can't wait to go over and actually meet some readers but this has been the next best thing talking to you and yeah it's been lovely thank you for having me thank you matt Port over is a
0: barnes and noble production the show is available on apple spotify and stitcher please rate and review us wherever you listen to podcasts